Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 87 of the Burden and Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Uh, today, I've got a returning guest, Mr. Sean Ryan. You may remember him back in episode 67. Uh, we had a great discussion then, and at the end of the uh, at the end of the show, as we were chatting during ramp up, we realized that we had a lot more uh, to say. So we booked Sean, got him back on the show, and this is going to essentially be uh, a part two, a continuation of our discussion about his book, Getting Gear. And uh, some of the topics that we didn't discuss in the first episode. Uh, now, looking at the stats, I know you loved episode 67. So I have no doubt that you're going to love episode 87 with Sean Ryan. So let me get out of your way and let you get into this brilliant interview with Sean. All right, everybody. Hello and welcome to uh, this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Uh, today's guest is uh, kind of a special guest in, in uh, a, a totally different way than I usually say my guests are special. Uh, he's only my second, second time guest. Uh, you may remember him back in episode 67, Mr. Sean Ryan. Sean, thanks for being with us again for uh, for a second round on the podcast. Earl, thanks for having me back. <laughs> I, I, I hope it's a, a compliment, and it's not just that uh, I was incredibly long-winded on the uh, first try. Oh, no, it is an extreme compliment. Like we said when we got to the end, uh, you know, felt we had, you know, several hours more conversation there. And, uh, you know, looking back uh, when I was posting episode 67, uh, I noticed we – you got the the seven gears there of your book, Get In Gear. And we really focused on the first three, which you call the kind of the environment gears. Um, and so those were uh, right, right, right. Getting the right people in the right roles uh, with the right capabilities. Uh, align the architecture and culture of communications. And so we kind of glossed over the performance gears. So I figured if you were okay with it, uh, in this episode, we would uh, focus on those. How does that sound? That sounds fantastic. Would love to do that. Oh, good deal. Well, before we get in there, now you've already kind of answered what the burden of command means to you. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance since our last recording to kind of think about any more. Would you like to revise your answer, add anything to it? Um, or, you know, how do you feel about the burden of command now? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't revise my answer, but but I would say this, um, you, you know, you, I continue to get collect experiences with people and and we're going to talk about the performance gears today, which is really about and, and it connects, obviously, to the, the theme of the whole book, which is about driving strategy to results. And uh, I'll just say this to kind of set context for that related to the burden of command. Um, you know, one of the things that we believe about leaders is that leaders are responsible for deliver, delivering results in a values-based environment. And uh, since the last time we spoke, uh, been lots of different experiences with with different organizations, uh, but but one in particular really stands out. You know, it's an organization with a lot of really good people, uh, and pr pretty well positioned uh, in its marketplace to be successful. Yet it was completely underperforming and, and had been for 
probably several years relative to what was possible. And as a result, um, the before we started working with them, the, the leader of that organization had been, uh, let's just say, relieved of duty. Uh, yeah. He was he was asked to go do some other things. <laughs> and uh, we, we started working with the organization to help them think through how, how do we perform better? And we frankly applied a lot of the principles that were that are in the book. And it was really surprising to me as in one of our first conversations with the group. They started talking about how uncomfortable it was to think through the things that they were going to have to do to be able to be successful, the changes they were going to have to make. And and I, I, I had I asked them a question. Uh, I said, so what's really more uncomfortable? Is it the fact that you're going to have to make these decisions or was it more uncomfortable to lose money, you know, for your organization? And it, it got dead. It was just complete, complete, you know, virtual web conference thing. So I can see people. Right. And, and it's like, I was in the room with them and I got to watch them all start checking their shoes uh, to see how well shined they were. They're all like looking down at their feet because they didn't want to look up at the camera yeah. and, and have to admit that, yeah, it actually had for them become comfortable to underperform what was possible. And, and I think that just really, you know, it, the burden of command, you know, that whole idea of leaders, regardless of whether we're in a profit or nonprofit or a government organization or an NGO or whatever it might be, We've got a responsibility to lead our teams in a way that we deliver the results that are critical to that organization. And if we don't, we've actually failed uh, in in leading and, and, you know, being the commander, if you will. So it just it was very insightful. Yeah, no, I, I that that is, you know, it's interesting. And I'm just kind of curious, did they ever actually come back and, uh, you know, kind of set on an answer or did that just kind of hang out there? They, they still mulling it over. They, they, they eventually in that conversation admitted, well, yeah, we, we kind of got comfortable with not performing as well as we could. Yeah. And we did get complacent about our lack of maybe our lack of discomfort. Mm-hmm. How's that for a double negative? But uh, and, and so then they began to realize, yeah, as uncomfortable as these decisions are going to be that we have to make, it's actually way better. Yeah. Because we're going to be doing the right thing for our organization, for our team, and for our customers to make the tough decisions, that's actually ultimately going to be more comfortable. And, and what's really interesting was the speed with which they were able to to move uh, to a much better uh, performance level. I mean, within what what we thought was going to take maybe five or six months, they they actually the team was so good they managed to. Uh, get back on track within just a couple or three months. And, and that, that in of itself is amazing too. When you think about, I mean, they had underperformed for several years and then all of a sudden, given that they had a, a new leader that was setting a new tone, a new set of expectations, how quickly they were able to, to reverse, you know, turn the ship and get moving in the right direction. So. Yeah. Wow. No, that is, that is, you know, pretty powerful. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there, right? I mean, they they had the they had the skills there. They knew they had the skills, uh, but that complacency piece, right? You know, and that's one of the things like they used to uh, pound in our heads in the Marines and you know the 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 Navy the SEALs have kind of made this famous, like they they created it. But the the phrase you know get comfortable being uncomfortable, uh, you know that was always kind of our cornerstone is get comfortable being uncomfortable, whether it is you know, whether we're talking about the weather conditions or whether we're talking about the task at hand or whether we're talking about having difficult conversations and, and holding each other accountable to that higher standard. Um, and, and that is something that is, uh, you know, not a lot of organizations are really comfortable being uncomfortable as you uncovered there, right? Uh, absolutely. And, and that's, that's interesting that you would say that because we've, we've used that phrase, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable literally thousands of times. And, and again, you know, you and I have only met a, a couple times and right. uh, we, we seem to keep stumbling upon language and experiences that uh, it's like we've uh, 
you know, been, uh, you know, like twins separated at birth, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think there's, there's another twist on it that we actually learned at Disney, um, a long time ago, you go back, uh, 20 years, 25 years when we were working with them. And, and, uh, we described their culture as one of uh, celebrated discontent. Mm. And it, it adds a little bit of a twist to that, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, which really deals with the discontent side. We always, as leaders, we have to be discontent. One of the other things we think about great leaders is they, they define the gap and there's always a gap between where you are and where you need to be to be ultimately successful. Whether that's at the organizational level, the team level, or the individual level, there's there's always some kind of gap. Mm-hmm. Which is that and, and we have to be comfortable in that in that discomfort of there is this gap. We have to find the gap. We have to be okay with the fact that that gap exists and, and incessantly work to close it. The cool thing that we saw at Disney, that whole culture of celebrated discontent was they could celebrate the successes and, and it, and it's important. It's critical. And, and one of the things we probably don't do as well as leaders as we should is celebrate the successes of our team and make sure people know, you know, we're going in the right direction. We're moving. Even if we're celebrating, you know, good failures, we need to celebrate those because that just reinforces that we're moving in the right direction. But then paradoxically at the same time, be discontent know that regardless of what we're doing, we have to be better tomorrow than we were today because somebody's going to be catching up with us or somebody's going to change the game. Or we're going to get new competition or the technology is going to change. And, and so that whole concept of celebrated discontent, be uncomfortable, be un, be comfortable, be uncomfortable, and then celebrate when you get the wins and, and, and the, the great failures. Yeah, no. And I love that. I love that. And it, you know, kind of uh, something we, we kind of, really glossed the surface on uh, last conversation that uh, the concept of finite and infinite games. And what you're talking about right there is a good way to look at it because, you know, if you don't keep chasing that gap, as, as you say, the uh, looking for improvement, you, you do it's that that's how you get complacency. And that's how you, you, because quote, you've won, you, you've, you know, you're the number one in, you know, the, the second market on the third Thursday, and that's good. You won, or you're number one. You know, if you ever watch uh, uh, car commercials, right? I think car uh, automakers do this better than anybody else. You know, we're the, the number one subcompact that begins with the letter H for eight <laughs> right. years running, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and so just imagine if it wasn't good enough being the, the number one subcompact that begins with the letter H and you were just the, you were striving to be the best car period, you know, like you said, that's something you always have to strive for because you can never be the best car because as you pointed out, you know, new technology comes along, you know, seatbelts get introduced, headlights that turn with the, the, the steering wheel get introduced, whatever the next big thing is gets introduced. But if you're comfortable, you're just going to let somebody else take that risk and they're going to pass you by. Right. Absolutely. No, I love it. Well, and that kind of goes into that first performance gear, if you will, set result oriented goals. So that's one of those things. It sounds very easy to do, but in my experience, it's actually a lot more difficult than what it sounds like, right? Uh, <laughs> look, <laughs> we, we've been playing with this stuff for years upon years and years. I, I couldn't agree more. It yeah. seems so easy right? Set result-oriented goals. Uh, be able to identify what it is you want to accomplish, not just what you're going to do, the activities you're going to undertake, but what is it that you want to accomplish? That seems, it. it in fact, when I talk to people about it, when we wrote about it in the book and written about it in, in different ways over times, it's like, this is so simple. Everybody gets this. And then you realize it's so much more difficult than that. Um, it is it is incredibly difficult to get people to put down on a piece of paper, here's what I want to accomplish, to think in terms of what they want to accomplish uh, versus just what they're going to do uh, or even commit to a goal in terms of what result that they want to achieve. It's it's uh, It just is shockingly exponentially more difficult than you would ever imagine uh, that it could be. 
Yeah, well, and, you know, a lot of people, like at least my experiences, uh, a lot of people like to just randomly, you know, hey, I want to lose 25 pounds or, hey, I want to increase my profit margin by 30% or, hey, you know, I want to hire five more African-Americans in in the next year. Well, where did that number come from? And and is it achievable? Right. Right. And, and, and. I think that's a big component here is if you, you set these result oriented goals, but are they achievable? Right. Well, and, and I would add another twist to it, Earl, which is, I mean, you, you're, you actually just outlined instinctively probably more quantitative, tangible result oriented goals than most people do. Most people, instead of saying, Hey, I want to lose 25 pounds in the next year, what they what the goal that they have in their head is uh, I, I want to lose weight. Right. Great concept. I would call that a goal category, not a goal. Mm-hmm. I want to lose weight. Uh, I want to sell more. Um, you know, those kind of things. Those are goal categories. They're not actually result oriented goals. The idea that I want to lose 25 pounds in the next six months or the next year is a phenomenal improvement over how most people think about it. Right. Yeah. And, and really it's, it's, it's hard, but it's not hard. I mean, conceptually it's simple, right? It's not hard to think about, okay, I, I weigh, you know, maybe 190 pounds a day and I want to weigh 165 pounds in a, a year. That's conceptually, that's not difficult. It's just psychologically difficult. I think for people to, to verbalize that, write that down and then make a commitment to closing that particular gap. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. So how do you like, do, do you have like a, secret weapon or whatever to, to get organizations to sit down and, and really, really think about these goals and, and really build out what a, uh, what a results oriented goal looks like for them and is achievable and attainable. Yeah. We just, we just yell at them until they do it. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. See, that's what the Marines did, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, I, I guess the, the secret, the, the secret sauce, the secret, you know, potion, the pixie dust is that we just sit down with them and we keep asking questions, uh, and providing them feedback until they literally write down a goal Mm -hmm. that is in more result oriented terms than how they came into the conversation. I mean, it's really, you, I want to make it like really complex and like, we really do have some secret sauce, but it is, you know, what is it when you say I want to lose weight or I want to sell more, let's, let's go with something a little bit more business oriented. I want to sell more. Well, you know, what is it that you want to sell more? How much more do you want to sell? You know, where are you today in terms of what you're selling where would you want to be in three months or six months or a year? How much do you want to sell? And and now we've kind of backed our way into a result oriented goal for selling Yep. from, you know, start where we are today to end where we want to be in the future in a, in a time frame, whatever, whatever that future time frame is, whether that's three months from now, six months from now, a year from now. Right. Right. Well, and I think that's kind of where your chasing the gap comment comes back into play too, because the I would say a very important piece of that is is the thing that you want to sell more of today, something that is even going to be saleable tomorrow, right? You know, there's a lot of stuff that that goes in and out of uh, fashion, if you will. Uh, you know, I mean, think of all the things that have changed with COVID. Uh, you know, here we are. Coming up on, uh, we're in January now. What, can you believe we're we're going on a year of dealing with this right now? Uh, it's, <laughs> you know, it's amazing. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. It is. But you know, so many things have changed in that environment where you know we see companies that uh, you know. I mean, now Zoom has kind of become synonymous with video conferencing, and they they've made a lot of money over this. You know, but. 
in a year, if we've got, you know, the vaccine and COVID goes away and we have people going back to their offices, how does Zoom stay how does Zoom stay in that zone, if you will, right? They're going to have to figure something else out. Right, absolutely. And uh, I think, I mean, that's a great point. And and here's the one of the great things, one of the great benefits, but it's also where the I think part of the discomfort comes from, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, whether you're Zoom or you're a salesperson or the, the, the manager of a production line where you have to, you know, improve throughput and improve quality and, 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 and drive down your costs simultaneously. The discomfort comes in and, and part of the reason that people are so reluctant, I think where the psychological difficulty of setting goals is when, when I write it down and I make the gap really clear, now I'm uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. This is, if, if I have to say it, look, I, I want to lose weight. You know, I know I need to lose some weight and I'm going to eat a little bit less. I'm going to exercise a little bit more. That may make me feel a little bit comfortable, uncomfortable, but really uncomfortable is when I have to really specify, quantify what the gap is and then go deal with it. And, and I think that, so that's, that's kind of one of the, that's the downside, the discomfort, you know, and that's why it's important for people to get comfortable being uncomfortable. But then in in writing down the goal, if you're Zoom and you still want to increase increase in 2021, let's say your sales by 20 percent over the, where they were in in 2020, that that gift that you got <laughs> if you're Zoom. Well, well, now by writing it down, now I have to now I have to think about what is it that we have to do? What value? You know, what customers would we target uh, that we don't have today that are maybe using some other uh, web-based platform? There may be people who haven't, maybe we draw in customers, uh, potential customers who haven't been a part of our, haven't experienced our products and services yet. So I have to, by putting that goal down, regardless of whether I believe it's achievable or not achievable, is now I have to begin to figure out what do I have to do to to be able to hit that goal, right? And that's mm-hmm. where the magic comes from is when you when you define that result-oriented goal, you can start thinking about all the things you have to do, change, whatever it might be to be able to be successful at, at closing that gap and hitting the goal. Love it, love it. Well, and that kind of ties into the, the next gear, build visible scorecards. And and I heard some of that there with, you know, building these scorecards so you kind of can track and, and see how your progress is going, right? Right. Absolutely. So we almost always start talking about scorecards by posing this question to people. Just randomly walking through a, a business, talking to people online, whatever it might be. How do you know how you're doing? If I ask that question, it's interesting to me that the number one answer over decades now, recent data in, and then going back 30 years, if I ask the question, how do you know how you're doing? The number one answer is I must be doing okay. And then we ask, well, why do you think you're doing okay? Well, because I'm not getting in any trouble. Wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it's like, so, so do you really know? No, I'm not getting any trouble. So I must be doing okay, which tells me I should just keep doing it. And, and in a lot of cases, and, and then, I mean, not, not a huge number of cases, but a significant, a noticeable number of cases, people think that they're doing okay and their peers or their managers or other, or their customers think, man, you're, you're not just not doing okay. You're doing terribly. And, right. uh, you know, so, so that the visible scorecard how, for people to know how they actually are performing, you know, and, and uh, uh, we, we often use this kind of metaphor. If you're, if you're watching kids play soccer on two fields next to each other and on one field, they're keeping score and on the other field, they're not keeping score. Now they're, they're all having fun. Kids keeping score, the kids not keeping score. They're all having fun. But if you're watching from 100 yards away, how quickly could you figure out which field the kids are keeping score on and which field they weren't keeping score on? 
Oh. Quick. Quick. Right. The the answer, I mean, invariably is quick or instantaneously or within the first five or ten seconds. Yeah. Right. Because when we keep score, all everybody behaves more intently. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more feedback. There's more co- coordination. There tends to be more communication because when you're keeping score, people want to win. They start taking the actions necessary to change the outcome of the game while it's still being played up to the limits of their ability to be able to do that. And, and so keeping, we, we all know instinctively, we all know keeping score is important and keeping score in a time frame again, that, that allows me to change the outcome of the game while it's still being played, which is, is the essence of visible scorecards. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, again, you touched on something at the very beginning there when you, you said most people say, well, you know, I'm not getting in trouble or, you know, I must be doing okay because I'm not getting in trouble. And, you know, there's this major disconnect between they think they're doing their okay, they they think they're doing okay when they're really not. But that kind of goes back again to this get comfortable being uncomfortable because, you know, those those leaders, those managers – you know, they have a responsibility to those individuals to create these scorecards to help the people on their team uh, grow and thrive, right? Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll give you a great example. And I, and I am <laughs> I, I am the bad leader in this example, essentially. Oh. We, uh, I tell the story in, in the book, and um, I had the opportunity a few years ago to lead the turnaround uh, of a resort that was failing. Um, it had been like so many organizations had done really well for a while. Uh, and then it, it got a little bit older. It needed some reinvestment. They hadn't made smart choices about reinvesting. Uh, and then we hit a, hit a recession in the early two thousands and this resort that was kind of hanging on by a thread all of a sudden gets in really tough shape. And so I, I get engaged to help do the turnaround on the resort. And then uh, I got re-engaged uh, after we had restructured everything. They asked me to actually lead the place through the turnaround, not just be a consultant, but just go lead it. And, uh, you know, it was one of those horrible hiring decisions that somebody made, you know, and uh, I said, look, if you're, if you're, I've done a lot of consulting with food and beverage organizations and hospitality and, 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 you know, restaurants and resorts and hotels, but I've never actually led one. I said, if you're okay with somebody leading this, that's never led through what you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish, I'm your guy, you know, and and they said, yes. (laughs) At which point I should have, you know, the the old line of I'm not going to go to work for anybody that would actually hire me because that's not a smart hiring decision. (laughs) Right. So, so I'm, I'm, we're, and we had, we had 11 food and beverage operations and we had a, uh, I started a monthly process to sit down with the managers of each of those food and beverage operations and go through their P&L every month. And uh, one of the things that we learned very quickly was they couldn't improve the performance of their uh, restaurants, their food and beverage operations within the time because we were just looking at monthly P&Ls and we're looking at the P&L on the 10th day of the month following. And one of the big drivers uh, in our business was staffing our labor costs. And, um, what, what became really clear really quickly was they didn't have good tools to manage labor costs. And so when we got the, we got the P and L 10th day of the month following, we'd look at it every month. We'd sit there and we'd say, we need to get labor costs down. And all those managers would look at me and they'd say, absolutely. And then we'd say, okay. And we felt like, you know, felt like we had a good conversation. We were all totally aligned but they had no tools. And so the next month we sitting back around in that meeting, we're looking at the P and L and the labor costs are 25%, 30% higher than they should have been. And they'd all look at it and I'd say, what, what's our challenge here? They'd say our labor costs are too high. And we'd say, got to get our labor costs down. And everybody go, (laughs) yes, got to get the labor costs down. And 
felt like we had a good conversation. And, and so then we realized the the problem that we, they had no scorecard to go by within the month to know what they needed to do to get their labor costs down. They had no visibility on their labor costs. So we go to our IT people and, and this, this applied, this challenge applied across our whole resort. Mm-hmm. We knew we were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a month across the resort in on labor costs that we shouldn't have been spending, that we didn't have the rest revenue to justify. So we, we go to our IT team and we say, Hey, can you build us a system that we can track labor costs in real time on a daily basis? Kind of like we, we track revenue. We've got a, we've got a daily flash report on revenue. Can you give us a daily flash report on labor costs? They said, absolutely, we can do that. Mm. It's going to cost a million and a half dollars, and it's going to take 18 months. To which my response was, in 18 months or a million and a half dollars, whichever one comes first, we're bankrupt. So that's not an option. So we ended up, we're like, okay, how are we going to do this? Well, we... One of our team members came up with just the blinding flash of the obvious, the most elegant solution ever. They said, hey, look, every every day we know how many hours. At the end of the day, we know how many hours of labor we've accumulated that day. And we know what the daily flash report was from a revenue standpoint. So why don't why don't we just report? Our, and, and our labor costs, everybody was roughly the same. Maybe, maybe a few people made a little bit more than others, but they were roughly the same. So if we just knew how many hours we could quickly calculate on the back of an envelope, or in this case, an Excel spreadsheet, what our total labor cost was approximately within, you know, plus or minus a couple percent on a daily basis. And so we just started having everybody report their labor hours at the end of every day. And by noon, the next day, we gave them a report that showed, here's what your revenue was. Here's what your labor costs were. Here's what your labor costs should have been to justify that revenue. So here's here's what the variance was. How long, Earl, how long do you think it took once we, we started putting that that report in front of people? How long do you think it took for everybody to get their labor costs under control? Oh, I'd say it was probably fairly quick. Maybe, maybe just a few weeks, if then. It 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 was less than thirty six hours. There you go. They they got the first report at noon. You know, the first day we started doing it, literally that afternoon. That afternoon, people started you know, cutting staff, sending people home, scheduling a little bit differently because they knew what, how the revenue was going to match up to the labor costs. So literally within 36 hours, this problem that had been going on for months, simple spreadsheet, simple back of the napkin calculation. Was it perfect? No, but now they had an approximately, very approximately right scorecard that allowed them to change the outcome of the game while it was being played. Oh, yeah. No, I love that. I mean, and especially that last piece there about the, the process, right? The solution, because, you know, you had two options, a million and a half dollars in 18 months, or you had a simple spreadsheet, instantaneous, virtually zero dollars, and it served the same purpose. And I think that's, you know, when we're talking about, you know, these scorecards and, and goals and all that, I think that may be the biggest stumbling block for a lot of folks is this, this, human nature need to overcomplicate simple. And and if you can find that simple solution, as, as you just pointed out, that, that simple solution, while sure, maybe it's not perfect, but it was good enough. And, and it sounds, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming by the way this story is going, that that resort ended up kind of getting back on track versus, you know, going under under the weight of a million and a half dollars and 18 months of continued uh, overages on the cost. That simple solution was probably a, a lifeline, right? It, it was it was one of the two or big two or three big things that we did that enabled um, the, the resort to get back on track. It, you know, one of the things that you learn and having having been involved in a few turnaround situations, you know, sometimes 
a turnaround, you, you see people do things, and I think they do horrific things sometimes in turnarounds where they go in, they restructure, they lay off everybody. Um, they don't really do anything to improve the operation, improve the revenue side, get better connected with customers. And so you get this, this short term, what, what we call it's the dead cat bouncing. <laughs> Anybody can make a dead cat bounce if you just drop it off a, you know, a high enough roof, right? right. Um, this, the, the great news here was, this was one of the two or three things that really was incredibly impactful in turning that operation around, that business around. And it wasn't the dead cat bouncing. The team got reengaged. The, the guests and the customers got reconnected because some of the things that the, the team did for them. And then we got the financial side under control. And, and so within it, it didn't take forever. It, it took eight or nine months to get to positive cash flow with a much better, uh, more reengaged team. And, and the guests started wanting to come back instead of uh, defecting and going to find any other place that they could possibly go to. So, yeah, it ended up being a great story. Yeah, well, and, and I think that, that last piece there, too, uh, you know, having those comfortable or those uncomfortable conversations with folks like, I would imagine, and I, I don't know how these conversations went with the managers, but I would imagine if you start telling, you know, say wait staff and, and bus people and even, you know, line cooks and whatnot, look, the reason your hours are being cut is because we just don't have enough people coming in. If you want your hours to increase, help us get more people come in. So you, you build this incentive, uh, you know, for them to, provide better customer service to provide better word of mouth advertising and, and encourage their friends to come in and their family and, you know, changing that attitude. Hey, I've got skin in the game. You know, if, if these numbers go up, my numbers go up. So now I'm invested and I'm engaged and it means something to me that the average Joe employee, right? Absolutely. And boy, you hit the nail on the head. We had all kinds of those difficult conversations. It was it was another one of the great lessons for me. I'd been there for a couple months, and uh, we thought we'd been communicating really well about what our challenges were. And uh, I'm walking through our sales office one day, and uh, I, the, one of the salespeople, great salesperson, as I'm walking down through the hallway, she screams out at me, "Hey, GM guy!" Like what? She goes, come here. She goes, I, I know you think you all are communicating really well. She goes, but, but our team has, the team has no idea what's really expected of them, what they need to do. I'm like, what, what do you mean? And, and she was incredibly generous with her time and to, to share with me the details. And so it, I was like, okay, so we, we, we had 1200 people you know, spread across it and not all full-time. I mean, it was probably six or 700 full-time equivalents. Most people worked part-time uh, in that kind of business. We had 1200 people spread across 50 business operations. And, and, and what that salesperson told me was you all just have to do a much better job of connecting with people, communicating with people. And uh, so I, I took it upon myself. I, I don't know if it was the right thing to do or not, but I started, and to your point about communicating the difficult message, mm -hmm. and so every month I made a commitment I was going to go see all twelve hundred team members, and mm -hmm. started doing these kind of roundtable meetings, you know, shift by shift, operation by operation. Went to see everybody once a month, and I, and I had this I carried this uh, pad of you know paper pad like a uh, you know a flip chart kind of thing around with me. And, um, and, and so I, I just sketched our financials on, on a piece of chart paper. And, and then I would also chat with them and whatever questions they were, whatever, whatever they had in the way of questions, uh, challenges they were facing, uh, whatever I would capture it on the chart paper as, as I had a chance to go talk to them. And invariably every month they would say to me, Almost not every team, but most teams, somebody on the team would say, Hey, when am I going to get a pay raise? And, you know, it's like now I've got this really uncomfortable conversation I have to have, which is we're, we're losing money. 
And I have to tell this person who really is working hard enough to deserve a pay raise, hadn't had a pay raise in four or five years before I got there. And, uh, you know, but I had to say to him, look, there's just no way. And and really the conversation was, it, it was this incredible deal. And it, to the team's tribute, they bought into it completely and they ultimately got rewarded for it. But it was, look, I can give you a pay raise today. I can absolutely do that. But let me show you right here on the chart paper. If I give you a pay raise today and I give everybody a pay raise, because if I give you a pay raise, everybody ought to get one, right? If, you, if you've earned it, so does everybody else in this room. Here's what it's going to do to our financials. And look how more quickly we go out of business. Right. So I can give you that pay raise. The problem is in 90 days or 60 days or 45 days, you're not going to have a job. Yep. So it's really kind of your choice. Which would you choose? And obviously to a person, they said, you know, keep the pay raise and, you know, and, and, and then we got into great conversations about what do we all need to do to get this place back on track? And it really was completely dependent upon the team and the team had to deliver great guest experiences that would get people to want to come back and tell the story of what a great place this was. And and, and they did it. They, the team actually went and connected with the guests, whether it was a housekeeper or as a front desk clerk or it was one of those people in the restaurants connecting with guests and creating these incredible experiences. And, and that, was, that was really what ended up paying off for us. Well, yeah. No, I love it. And that, that kind of, uh, I mean, for me, and, and you know, tell me if I'm, I'm completely off base here, but that to me kind of encompasses you know, the next gear. Identify the performance drivers. And what you did through that conversation was you unlocked the fact that our performance driver isn't really serving food, making beds, all that. It's providing the high quality customer service to make people want to come back. And, and, and I think that, that, that in the hospitality industry is something that a lot of folks, maybe the, the managers get it, but, but, a lot of uh, servers and wait staff, you know, think that they're there to transport food from the kitchen to the table. And what really makes a great, uh, let's say, restaurant, right, is that customer service experience. Anybody can carry food from the kitchen to the table. But do you provide a great customer service experience? That's what's going to bring me back. That's going to make me tip you, you know, 30, 40% instead of whatever that little number is that prints out on the bottom of the receipt is how much of a customer service experience are you providing to me? So am I way off on that or not? No, I I think, I think that's really smart. I think that's right on track. Right. And, And it is what, what is it that I do that the performance drivers, as we describe them, uh, in in the seven gears are about what are those things that I do that allow me to hit those result oriented goals that we set, and that result oriented goal might be well certainly if I'm a server in a restaurant, you know what's the most important result oriented goal is to generate profits for the restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, and there's there's the short term component of that which is this guest this experience what are the things that I might do to help this guest have a great experience and, and especially buy lots of drinks and dessert, the high margin stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but to your point about the customer services, delivering that great guest experience Uh, and what somebody described one time as it's a mini vacation that, that 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half or two hours dining experience Treat that as that's a mini vacation for that guest and make them feel like they're on vacation, which then prompts them to want to come back again. And so you got the short term component of in this experience, how do I sell drinks and desserts and more food that people buy and we make profits? But then also, how do I deliver an experience that makes people want to come back and wants them to tell the story of what a great experience I had? Right. And yeah. so those become the performance drivers. And, and, and we know, and we've all, we've all had this experience. You know that there are some great servers in restaurants out there. And you also know that there are some that are good, but not great. Some that are mediocre and some that really probably ought to go 
enjoy other lines of employment. (laughs) And, and the, the, the real critical performance drivers, and I would guarantee you that most of the time there are two or three things that the great servers are doing that is a little bit different than what the good or average servers are doing. And it's those two or three things. And, and we've seen it time and time again, great salespeople do two or three things differently than good or average salespeople, great operators in a manufacturing environment or great customer service reps or great software designers, even they do just a very limited. Most people do everything about the same. And then the great performers do a couple or three things better than everybody else. Those are the critical performance drivers. And if we can identify what those two or three really critical performance drivers are, we can teach that to everybody else. And now everybody, everybody that's doing that job is a little bit better than they otherwise would have been. Mm. And, and yeah, and again, that is, that is so critical because, you know, when you look at the neuroscience behind that, right, happier customers do spend more time, more money, they're more likely to buy those things. And that means that the overall experience, you know, now you're not having to cut those hours. Now you're able to hire more wait staff. Now you're able to invest the time, money, and effort into training those one or two different things. And and it just loosens everything up. But then when you, and so this is kind of the, the danger, right? And this is why it's, it's a never ending cycle. If you do all these things really well and you get to the point where you're back on track and you're back to being successful, you got to make sure that you don't get complacent again and let those bad habits creep back in, right? Right. Absolutely. Right. You got to keep the gains. You still there. You still have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. And uh, defining the gap and what's the next level up, because what we know and you think about how competitive the restaurant industry is, even even pre covid or non covid, because there will be a time that that COVID's not an overwhelming concern. Right. Um, you, you think about how competitive that business is. And as good as you might be today, somebody moves in next door and they got the new trendy place and you're all of a sudden your guests are gone. You hope they come back, they experiment, and they come back. Um, but you have to keep up in your game and improving that experience so that people want to keep coming back. And, and it's especially true in restaurants, but it's true for all of us in, in any kind of a business. We, we have to continue to up the game. And so then really what, what we talk about in the book is over time, the performance drivers have to continue to change. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't get them right. You don't guess them right. First time off, you know, you don't have good examples. You got to go figure it out. You experiment. You don't know exactly what they are. Sometimes it's just you have to you have to be uncomfortable and you have to be constantly raising the bar on your performance so that and so then the performance drivers, those critical things that distinguish the results, they have to change over time to allow you to hit that next higher level of performance. And that's kind of where this last gear kicks in, right? That follow up, follow through. Absolutely. And as a good friend of mine described when we were talking about it, he said, follow up, follow through is the glue that holds everything together. And in in our minds, there are two components to follow up, follow through. One, everybody gets, which is the idea that there has to be accountability and and. And we like to think about accountability in the sense of people being accountable, not being versus being held accountable. So accountability is an important part of the follow up, follow through results have to matter uh, and behavior within our value set has to matter. And if those things don't matter, then people quickly figure out that it doesn't matter behavior relative to our value set starts to get incredibly variable. If it doesn't matter, you say that respect is important, but then everybody's treating people disrespectfully and that seems to be okay. It's tolerated. People look the other way. Then you realize, okay, it really doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, So behavior has to matter within the value set and, and results have to matter. But before we get to 
accountability, there's another component that I think is as absolutely crucial in follow up, follow through, which is the whole idea of generating learning. When our results are not where we think they ought to be, before we get to the accountability piece, let's talk about why they're not where we think they ought to be. Was the goal wrong in the first place? Was the goal for some reason not actually tied to our strategy? Is there a disconnect there? Are our goals not right? Are we not tracking the right stuff? Uh, have we not identified the right performance drivers? So let's let's take a step back, do a little bit of learning first to see, you know, is, is there something that we're doing? Um, you know, we talked in the in our in our first episode together about the uh, the environment gears, and one of those is aligning the system structures, processes, and culture to the strategy. And you know, often, you know, one of those systems is compensation. And often you'll find this disconnect between what we say we want and what we compensate people for. And, and so if you're looking at performance and you either see people getting rewarded for doing the wrong thing or getting punished for doing the right thing, well, you need to go fix that system architecture. You know, I can't really, I mean, we want people to do the right thing just because they know what the right thing is. But if we're rewarding them for doing the wrong thing, selling the wrong stuff, the lower margin stuff, you know, um, here's, here's one. Um, we, we saw a group of uh, telephone customer service reps one time where their goal was how many their, their goals were completely based upon an activity of how many phone calls they took per hour. And they got in trouble. They were held accountable if they weren't hitting the standard. Well, sometimes customers needed more than the average four or five minutes that was allocated per call. Right. And what the customers, but the customer service reps would get in trouble if on, for whatever reason, today my average is a little bit higher than normal. I had five customers who needed extra help and they took 20 minutes each instead of the five minutes. And I got in trouble at the end of the day. So what the customer service reps started doing was they would hang up on the customers. Mm. <laughs> Mid-conversation, wow. they'd realize that the call was going to go too long and they were going to get in trouble. And and so they would hang up on them, mm. like having technical difficulties. It was very ironic <laughs> that it was in a telecommunications company. And uh, <laughs> But they would hang up. They were being, you know, so they're, they're being punished for trying to do the right thing, which was take care of customers. And so we got to learn, you don't want to go hold those customer service reps accountable for that. Yeah. Now that's a bad thing to do, but if your performance system is rewarding them or punishing them for doing the right thing, well, that's a learning process. And so we want to learn first because I shouldn't hold you accountable for some stupidity that I create explicitly or implicitly created. I ought to go fix that system yeah. first. And then, then when we've fixed those kind of things, now we, now we know when somebody's not performing, it's because they're not performing, not because I played some kind of Donkey Kong game where I kept throwing barrels and in front of them, making their job incredibly difficult. I, I, yeah. And, but it, it goes back again to, to that really understanding what your business is. And, you know, one of the things I loved about, uh, you know, the late Tony Shea at Zappos is, you know, he was, uh, I can't remember where I, I heard him say this, but he says, you know, a lot of people think that Zappos is a shoe company that has great customer service. He said, no, we are a great customer service company that sells shoes. And yes. they have kind of the the anti antithesis to the story you just shared. Uh, you know, there's kind of a famous story at Zappos of where uh, a lady called in. Uh, she'd order a pair of shoes. I want to say it was for her husband's funeral. And the tracking information came in, and it was going to be like the day after the funeral. So she calls up Zappos, uh, you know, trying to find out what could be done. And if they could up the tracking or up the, the shipping to get them there on time. And his customer service representative said, well, unfortunately, we can't uh, change the tracking once it's in. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you a new pair of shoes, 
uh, overnight. So they will get there tomorrow and then proceeded to, you know, ask the customer, you know, she just told her that her husband had passed away. He's going to a funeral. How are you feeling right now? And ended up talking to this lady for, I want to say it was like four or five hours. And, and, and so like, you know, think about that culture uh, kind of dichotomy for a second versus you, what happened at Zappos versus what happened with what you said. You got people hanging up on a customer and one and the other one, you've got somebody like building a legitimate bond with a customer for four to five hours. Which customer do you think is going to come back and buy more and be a loyal customer in the future? Oh, ab- absolutely. We we call those we call those wow experiences. Those yeah. kind of experiences that just form incredible emotional bonds and people always want to come back, yeah. right? When when they have that kind of experience. Right. What a what a great thing by that customer service rep to take the time and to care that much, you know, to do that. That's phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. What well, speaking of wow experiences uh, Sean, we've talked for another 50 minutes or so here, and it has just been an outstanding conversation yet again. I'm really glad we're able to get you back on here. Thanks, Earl, um, for having me back. And uh, I thought it was a great conversation. I much enjoyed it. And uh, I'm hopeful that uh, your listeners enjoy it, too, and uh, get something uh, interesting out of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't see how they can't. There was a lot of good information there. And, you know, thank you for sh- sharing the, the stories that you shared and the experiences that you've been through, because, you know, I think that's the the magic there, right, is when people hear that, you know, these aren't just, uh, you know, abstract ideas written down in a book. These are things that people have actually lived through and, and put to work. And, uh, you know, for the listeners, you know, the book is titled Getting Gear, the seven gears that drive strategy to results. And uh, I said it on the last show and I'll say it in this one, I highly recommend you get this book, uh, put it close by so you can kind of reference it in your, in your daily leadership journey. Uh, you know, as you build these great organizations and Sean is a, an outstanding individual to, uh, uh, to have mentor you through these processes. And uh, on that note, uh, kind of as a refresher, how can folks get a hold of uh, you and your organization and, and uh, find out about what all you do? Sure. The simplest, easiest thing to do is just find us on the web at uh, www.ici.com. Again, it's www.ici.com, Whitewater International Consulting. Outstanding, outstanding. Well, before uh, before we close out completely here, was there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover uh, in this round that you'd like to cover? Uh, no, Earl, I probably covered far more than anybody, uh, wanted to cover, but you know, it just struck me, uh, when you did the wrap up, we, we talked about the idea of these, the, the seven gears and the, the gears we talked about in this episode in particular seem so simple. The idea of result oriented goals, visible scorecard, performance drivers, and then follow up, follow through. It seems so simple. But then you get into it and it's hard, especially the goals piece and and getting result-oriented goals. But then on the other side, it gets so simple again. Once you work through the process and you build the habit uh, and the discipline of working through those things, it it actually gets easy. And so I, I would leave people with that thought is you work through the uncomfort, you work through the discomfort, and really on the other side, once you get it in place, it starts feeling pretty comfortable and you just get used to the idea of working through the process. Mm, I love it. And for the veterans listening, basically what Sean said was suck it up, buttercup, get comfortable being uncomfortable. (laughs) It's a good way to sum it up, right? Yeah. That's so much more succinct and, and, and much more articulate than how I said it. No, I love it. Well, Sean, again, thank you very much for being with me and my guests. I've really enjoyed this conversation and, uh, you know, uh, I wish you all the the luck and success that you can possibly have here in, in 2021 now. Absolutely, Earl. Thank you. And, and I hope you have the greatest and all of your listeners have the greatest success in 2021, too. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you for being with us for uh, for another great conversation. Uh, if you have any comments, questions or concerns for me, 
uh, burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, keep up with the uh, subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing the show. So all these uh, great concepts that my guests, like Sean, uh, have to spread, get spread far and wide. Uh, if you have anything, just reach out, burden.command at gmail.com. Appreciate your time. Appreciate you being with us. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business, spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour.